Welcome to an episode of the Defo Mohapi Show, hosted by myself, Defo Mohapi. Thank you for taking some time out to listen to this podcast. The show explores the impact, whether famously or infamously, some of my guests have had on the world. Their views on the state of the world currently and what they think needs to be done to make our world better. Or at minimum, how we can all get along better and do better. Make sure to head over to radio.iafrican.com. That is radio.iafrican.com. And subscribe to get notified on new episodes of this podcast and other iAfrican radio shows. I hope you find this episode insightful. I think there's, a, there's an actor called Rob Lowe, he's a producer as well and a director, and it was at the 2014 Cannes I think, Festival, where he said that to achieve longevity, you will have cycles, and no one gets there in one shot. Would you say that's what's kept you in the game, in terms of, specifically with tech media, because I know you do other media? To be honest, you're actually one of the few people that understands that I'm not just about technology. People have insisted on putting me in that box. Uh, which I find to be fascinating. I, I was in a karaoke club once and some dude was just like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and, and I thought that was, I thought that was rude because, you know, obviously people think that when you are in tech, then that's all you are. That's all you do. You probably don't have interest. Maybe you don't have pets or. No, you or, get people like, if you tweet something that's non-tech, specifically yeah. on Twitter, and they like, no, we expect you like to only do this. You know, like, no, I'm, and that like makes a no human sense. Being. People are human beings. You know, they have diverse interests. They, they're interested in many things, you know, and uh, so I'm definitely not just all about technology, but I have always had an affinity for for technology. Um, I remember when, you know, like most kids, you know, the first computer that you get growing up. And I remember I would take it apart yeah. without my parents knowing, because obviously if they found out then <laughs> they'd have it finished. Like, this should... Um, by the way, I don't know what language. <laughs> Anything goes on this. Show. <laughs> Anything goes. Uh, you know, but you know, it it was expensive at the time, and you know, we're talking about these Pentium one, Pentium two type yeah, things. That's, that's, <laughs> a, that's a few years back, quite a number of years. With the floppy disks, you know, but you know, I take it apart and put it back together, and at some point, I self styled myself a computer engineer. I go around basically but making clone people? pieces, you know, yeah. which was not I think engineering. That's what, how most people started out during the nineties and, and that time, yeah. yeah. So that kind of was my first interaction with computers, but I didn't really consider myself a tech guy. It was just something that we play with. You know, like a like, hobby? Like it was, you know, there were games or on play, it. Or play, or <laughs> play, true, true. There were games. I, I didn't care about word process, processing or any or anything. Not until I was in university and um, I started to make video. I would make video. So like shooting videos and shooting editing? Shooting video for, for, for churches for the most part, you know. It wasn't anything strong narrative, but I did try to tell stories with them, which was kind of new to the people in that place because they were used to people just pointing a camera at a stage and then getting the, the, the video after. But, you know, we would add some... So what, some soundtracks? Some, you know, some soundtracks. We'd add some narrative, some story, some backstory to that. Um, that, that didn't get very far because I didn't have, you know, the gear. I remember I would start rendering 3D graphics. It would take six hours to render, like, 15 seconds. <laughs> yeah. And a for sure. Yeah. You know, so it just became too too difficult to do. And I kind of pivoted to graphic design, which was less resource intensive. 
<laughs> it doesn't right it doesn't need so much so processing, much processing, power, processing and memory. power and memory and that was easier to do and that was kind of where i got my start and i thought i was going to make video you know for i thought i was going to stay back in the town where i was in university and just make video there because at that time production values were way higher than the state broadcasting like there was nobody doing anything close to what i was we were doing at the time but it is it was a small town still in many respects not anything close to lagos just economically so which town I, is this this is in Ekiti? southwest nigeria in ikiti uh, <laughs> in ikiti state that's where you studied that's where I, that's where i started in, in university yeah and so after my university when i went to law school i just stumbled into this technology event it was called bar camp and it was organized by sheriff i remember Shitu. bar camp yeah the, google, that, wasn't the whole bar camp series no, it wasn't Google, but it was, no, I remember No, but it was Barkham. very popular. It was this thing that was going across Africa, different people where it was some sort of event franchise that people would organize locally and bring together whatever ecosystem existed at that time because... Developers, you whatever. Know, yeah, yeah, because it was, it was super mostly nascent. developers. Yeah, it was mostly developers who were making mobile apps, Java, G2ME. <laughs> oh my God, it was so long ago. It is long ago. <laughs> apps, and at that time, you know... There wasn't smartphones back there were, yeah, well, right. there at were, least for us. There were the Nokia Symbian, <laughs> the Symbian OS and the BlackBerry OS when BlackBerry was still a thing. And these people were the ones making these apps for, you know, it was very, very nascent. Maybe there were, I don't know, a few hundred of these people um, hanging out and in silos, obviously, all of them self-taught um, at the time. And Bar Camp was one of the events where they congregated. It was organized by this dude called Sheriff Shitu. And I just saw this thing on Facebook. I was in Lagos during my, it's a thing called court attachment. This Well, it's mandatory. like articles, like in South Africa would call it articles. Like right. You need to, before you become a full-time lawyer, lawyer you need then to you serve have to, under exactly, someone. Exactly. Yes. It was like a, for a few months and I was just hanging out, you know, doing that. And I saw that event posted. It was University of Lagos. So I showed up. You know, I, where my parents live, where I was living, it was like two hours away by bus. So it meant that, you know, I had some sort of logistical curfew, <laughs> you know, because obviously, you know, to get back to where I was going was really far out. But I, I left really early and I got there and there were all these people speaking this technology language that was flying over my head. You know, they were talking about J2ME, SDKs, APIs, uh, and then on the business side of things, MVPs you know, lean uh, methodology. Yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. like, what is all this? You know, I don't even know that agile was a thing at the time, but <laughs> they were, they were speaking in um, this register that was not really registering with me, but it was fascinating because they were obviously innovators uh, solving problems, using technology to do that. And that fascinated me. And it was, I think more than the technology, just the humanity of it all. The fact that these people were, in many ways, like me. I was about to say, I mean, it was, at, at, I guess at that time, it was a time, well, I'm looking from my side, where you would hear more about like you know, European and US startups who do that. Yeah. And when you see people who look kind of like you, it becomes interesting. I mean, to be honest, I, I, so I had not been even that exposed to. Well, yeah, you, you different. You were to, in a different field. <laughs> to, yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't that exposed to what people were consuming back then as far as technology. Uh, media was concerned and maybe that was fortunate on my part because i hadn't been immersed in the tech crunch or the uh you know i think it was the next web uh there were yeah there were a bunch of you know there was there was a lot of you know silicon valley tech media 
Pando Daily, um, All Things Digital um, by the WSJ before Karasusha and Waltmosberg moved on. You know, so that was the stuff I would later begin to encounter. But it was obviously... So this is after you engaged this, this was after I engaged with it first. And, and I think it just made a strong impression on me and informed my ideology and approach to the narrative going forward. Because what I then noticed when I spent more time was that people were massively influenced by, you know, Silicon Valley media and including all the blogs at the time who would review phones that had been launched three months ago. And back then, you know... <laughs> I remember that time. That was a crazy time. Yeah, it was. You know, and back then, you know, it would take, I don't know, three to six months for these phones to, to, to get here. Uh, it made no sense to me that we were competing with, you know, in terms of media and like... The narrative to cover the, the stories, To yeah. cover... A phone that had been reviewed six months ago. It's make no, it makes no sense. Which we could all read on the internet. Everybody can read on the internet, right? Why are you doing something that somebody else is just more logistically advantaged to do? And why not just focus on the stuff that they cannot do, uh, which is to talk about the local ecosystem and the local startups who are solving problems here? You know, so that is maybe, I, I feel like I'm preempting the conversation. <laughs> oh, it's fine. It's fine. Anything. It's like, just a conversation. Know, getting ahead so, of myself. But before we go ahead, I mean, if you had to choose a game, and I, I, I say this because the tech media, or should I say digital media, whether it's tech or not, is very fragile in the continent. If you had to choose again today and we had to rewind the years, would you still choose to go into media or become become an attorney? Oh, I definitely would uh, not be an attorney. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? I'm fascinated about that. Because so, I would think there'd be more money there. Yeah, you will be surprised. Wow. <laughs> Actually, okay. you'll be surprised, you know. And to be honest, I've not practiced. I never practiced. I literally, bo- I borrowed my wig and gown for the call to bar. I was like, my guy was coming out and I was just like, okay, man, congratulations. Give me your wig and gown. I'm going to go in now. <laughs> uh, I couldn't even bother to buy mine just because it was obvious to me that I was not going to practice. I knew that from my second year. And I was pretty much marking time at that point. I, I studied law mostly because when my parents found out that I wanted to be a journalist, which was shorthand for me. I wanted to get into media and I didn't, the most obvious role at the time for me was journalism because you see newscasters on TV, they're the ones, I didn't understand the value chain of media. So I didn't understand that there were diverse roles there. You know, you can be behind the camera, you can be a scriptwriter, you can be a produ- producer. None of that was obvious, obviously, because those people are not in front of the camera. But I knew that I wanted to create content. I was fascinated by media and content since when I was, I don't know, five years old. I'd watch the ads on TV and I'd think, how cool would it be to be one of the people that sing, you know, on the jingles? Like, it looks like fun. You know, they're choreographing and, and they're, you know, I could sing along with pretty much all the jingles from my childhood. I wanted to be in that space, but I didn't know how. And journalism was the most obvious thing. But journalism in Nigeria is not considered to be, you know, to be honest, not many professions are considered to be great. If you're not a doctor, lawyer, or engineer, then you're the family disappointment. <laughs> you know, so, you know, and my parents really wanted me to be a doctor, but, you know, when it became obvious that I wasn't really into the sciences, you know, I was good at biology, but apparently not great at math. And they were like, you can talk, you know, so now you're going to be a lawyer. And I was just like, eh, I don't know. And they were like, look, journalism can, if you, if you study law, then it gives you a leg up in journalism. And they showed me like a whole roster of people who were journalists, but also had law degrees. And that kind of influenced me. It was a logical argument <laughs> uh, that made me then relent and say, okay, sure, you know, I'll go do this law thing and maybe do journalism in post-grad or something, you know. But by my second year, I'd start, I picked up a camera and started to shoot stuff, you know. And by my third year, I'd stopped going to class altogether. I quickly figured out again 
how to pass my exams <laughs> without really going to class because there's also something about the Nigerian university system uh, it's it, you know where I kind of feel like many brains just go to die it's not it's it's a lot of people a lot of people le- learn by rote they're made to learn by rote it's the, it's the bad infrastructure Pri- with private universities is better you know you're memorizing a textbook that is 20 40 years old you know they're not actually teaching you anything and you're regurgitating and you don't need to that is any moron can do that right you know you don't need to go to class if all you're going to do is cram a bunch of textbooks you know so obviously private universities are better you know but the situation i was back then it made no sense to go to class because they were not learning anything so i just pick up the textbooks two three days before the exam and i memorize it and pass the exams and graduated like in top 10 in my class and people couldn't believe it because they were like this dude is uh is an nfa it was called a new um, an nfa means no future at all wow is that what you were called (laughs) people just assumed that i wasn't serious they'd be surprised now I don't know, you know, I don't know. I mean, obviously not, you know, getting into, into a pissing contest about who turned out well or, or, or anything. But, uh, back then, you know, it became obvious to me that this isn't what I wanted to do. And I just chose a different path altogether. I will spend all that time in what passed from my office. It was just shack <laughs> that we constructed. And I will, you know, make, I will do graphic design. I will do eventually web design. I mean, we did all kinds of stuff from that place. It was, uh, it was a, it was a good time. You know, I spent those three years just honing my craft and learning how to be a creative and a maker. And that prepared me for, for what I'm doing now. Uh, so I, I don't think I would have done it differently. I was never going to be a lawyer. That was just. Yeah, it sounds very clear. I mean, you say from second year onwards and what you talk about, like being interested from a very young age in content as well. I also want to look back specifically now at the tech media, like going back at say 2012, 2013. I think that's a period you guys started, right? Yeah, yeah. Tech Cabal specifically. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I like to think 2013 is when I officially, yeah, you know, around April, uh, I think my first public post where I acknowledged that this was a thing was probably even on the first of April when I acknowledged that I was doing this as a thing, you know. And I don't like to announce things or anything. I I don't come and say, hey, look at me, you know. I just posted, you know, um, stuff, and that was pretty much where uh, before then I started to blog i'd been contributing to techloy.com yes that's what i wanted to ask about and go back and it was kind of off the that bar camp event because after that event so I, you met Loy there yeah, yeah yeah you know I, I i think i'd been like you know tweeting about stuff and back then i had this blog it was called lloydbanks.com and i was writing different things super emo existential nonsense about politics <laughs> 2011 where were the Nigerian elections. Uh, it was a pretty crucial time and I had feelings and opinions. I don't, I didn't have a voter's card, so I couldn't vote, but I, I had thoughts and I was very patriotic and very naive and, you know, super in my feelings about all the stuff that was going on. So I would blog about that, but I also just blog about mundane stuff like being in the Danfo, which is, uh, yeah, the minibus bus, taxi. the minibus taxis. Um, or just riding around, like walking around Lagos. I call it Lagos hustle. Sit out, sit around in bus stops, watch people. I like to watch people, observe people in the buses, and and I would write about that stuff. But when I got a Nokia E63, that was a cool phone. It was right, and dude, I cleared out my savings. For <laughs> I remember spending months just like looking up all the phone reviews to figure out which one, you know. And it's like the Nokia E63 was a computer. It was fundamentally, it was. It was an amazing device. You know, I got all my work done on that phone. It was the phone that gave me access to Twitter. I, there was this cool app called Snaptube 
that you yeah. could do everything on before Facebook acquired it. I actually remembered um, when I wrote about um, Facebook getting acquired by Snap. I'm sorry, Snap to getting acquired by, by Facebook. Lois saw that post and was like, "Dude, you can write, man. Uh, come, you know, you want to contribute." And that was where I got my start blogging about technology. And then I will begin to write about my experiences interacting with the different founders, entrepreneurs, and developers in the space. I will go to these events, hang out with them. I was also doing what is called the NYSE, which is the mandatory one-year national service that you do after university in Nigeria. So I kind of had time um, at that at that at that particular point in in my life, and I was contributing to to TechLoy, writing these posts, going to these events, interacting with these people. And what happened, to be honest, I. It, it wasn't like I set out to create that sort of engagement, but people... It just happened. It just happened. You know, people begin to leave comments on my post. You know, I write a post and the next day there'll be 20 comments. There'll be, you know, and all kinds of people will show up, you know, people disagreeing vehemently, people saying, oh, you don't know what you're saying, you know, and people will be like... But there was engagement. You know, there was engagement. It was, it was interesting. And I think even though I was super naive, obviously, and inexperienced and probably didn't know a lot about what I was talking about. At least you man enough to say that. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe my my frankness and my honesty came through. Maybe my enthusiasm for the subject came through, and people engaged. And before I knew it, you know, I was some sort of I went from a non-entity to a known known-ish entity. I think it was when I wrote a really controversial blog post uh, about InterSwitch that it was about payments and how you know how I felt that they had abused their position as. A, essentially a gatekeeper they could have been a an ecosystem enabler and they and they could be doing more maybe explain what because for some listeners who don't know what InterSwitch is. they are the largest you know where are uh, they're about to ipo so massive fintech player yeah. and this was even before um not just in nigeria but in nigeria obviously like the biggest and you know this was even before fintech was a thing you know and and back then if you wanted to do e-commerce if you wanted to do anything online they were the go-to you know you, if you wanted to set up any uh, they, they, handle the they handle the payments you know they were the biggest player in that space and many people just found it really difficult to do transactions to get transactions to happen online because it was expensive which was kind of the biggest pain point for people but also because it was technically difficult in terms of the integration it wasn't very well documented and you know there wasn't any competition so to speak so there were an incumbent that had you know, for all intents and purposes, a monopoly uh, over the market. And, you know, as monopolies tend to be complacent. So, you know, I just wrote this rant post saying, hey, you guys could be doing better. <laughs> and if you don't do better, you know, there will be competition, uh, which has come through eventually. And it, it just set off a firestorm of comments from everyone. You know, obviously, there were, you know, there were the, you know, supporters and apologists who were just like dude don't you know uh you know you can't say that you know and then there were people who were like yes i've been waiting to hear this and you know it it started a conversation that led to them actually now listening and over time their approach has evolved they're now definitely more involved and engaged with the developer and merchant ecosystem you know they reached out actually and began to you know create initiatives began to engage with developers they started to talk to the co-creation hub and they hosted um, or sponsored um, a an event that they called developers paraqua which translated to english means developers come together so uh, engaging trying so, to get them yeah. to use their platform well not just but also understand what the pain points were and to see how they could accommodate okay. 
um, you know, obviously, eventually, as things evolved, you know, more players came onto the scene, you know, so your pay stacks, your flutter waves, you know, making things obviously incredibly more democratic. Uh, and things have changed significantly since that time. But that was, I think, the point where it became apparent to me that um, I wasn't just a voice. And what we were doing wasn't just, you know, posting stuff on the internet. It was, it was, you could actually shape the direction that an ecosystem will evolve in. Which is what content is about. Which is what it is about. Yeah. And now where, where do you, I mean, that's tech Roy and starting out there and stuff. How do you see, before I talk about media, but how do you see the whole, from your observation, as you say, you've been observing at that time and looking at it as it's been going through until now, what has changed, like both the good and the bad? I mean, I think that we... In Nigeria and across the continent in general. Oh, it's actually important too, because again, I have a very Nigerian frame of reference, even though I liked, uh, I'm trying to, you know, expand my, my scope and broaden my, my outlook. But in Nigeria, and this is not something that, <laughs> you know, off the cuff, I would have liked some time, more time to think about it because now you're extrapolating back, backward in, in time. What people, I think the ecosystem is beginning to mature in terms of what people think that technology can do. And back then, we were all very bright-eyed, naive, and super optimistic about the potential for the internet and technology to solve our problems. There was a very strong social entrepreneurship move at the time, led by the, generally across the continent, uh, you know, led by hubs, you know, like the and NGOs, development organizations. And on the other hand, you also had strong commercial capitalist movements, you know, so Conga, Junior, you know, it was, it was quite balanced at the time, right? You know, you had people who were going in it, into it to obviously create value and for profit. And there were people who were super focused on solving problems. Uh, but maybe it's over time, it's become obvious that we might have been too optimistic and underestimated how long it will take to, to actually effect the change. Because there are many underlying problems of infrastructure that, as Oreo Colo said uh, back a, a couple of years ago, you cannot entrepreneur yourselves around problems of infrastructure, fundamental basic problems that it is up to policymakers to solve. Uh, to solve. That's why we pay taxes, right? <laughs> you know, and you don't, you don't expect that, you know, you will raise VC money to fund roads or to fund uh, water, water piping or energy grids. It's just not realistic. Even though we see millions of dollars going into the energy sector, into the mobility sector, into the financial services sector, you know, into, into certain kinds of infrastructure in agri-tech. You know, we're seeing all of that activity. A lot of that stuff, you know, uh, might, might amount to, you know, pouring salt in the ocean if you're not careful, if you're not pragmatic about what it will actually take to move the needle. And what we're now beginning to see is a more mature ecosystem that is not just going to throw money and bodies and technology and software and algorithms at the problem, but also engage constructively with the regulators and with policymakers at all levels to make sure that we're moving harmoniously towards the future that we want. Which is why this um, you know, place we're in is, yeah. is, is interesting and strategic. The fact that we're with hubs across the continent engaging with the African Union, that is, that is a testament to how far we've come in terms of how we perceive Actually, now that you mentioned it, that, that's a very good point. Because if you think back to those six years back, I don't think we could even think of it happening like this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it was from two perspectives. The fact that they were not ready to listen 
That is the policymakers' government. They didn't care about anything that was going on in the first place. It was two different worlds, right? Yeah. You know, and the fact that many people were sure that technology was a silver bullet. They felt they could do solve these problems in spite of government, uh, in spite of policy, in spite of the fact that the infrastructure was bad. They really thought that it would happen. Uh, but what we're now seeing is that the government is, um, the governments across the, con- uh, the continent are now realizing that this is the future. And these are the people that hold maybe not necessarily the silver bullet, but a huge part of the solution to the problems. They're seeing that they're able to, I, I hate using that word leapfrog, <laughs> but you know, if you're thinking about the fact that you will never be able to train enough teachers to solve the problems of the gap in human capacity, to solve the, the gaps in the ability to train millions of youth who need to go to school and get an education so that they can be relevant in the 21st century. When you realize that that is a problem that you cannot surmount with the current methods that we have, with the current analog methods of teaching and training and upskilling teachers to train those people and how many schools that you need to build to even absorb that youth bulge, you know, when you realize that, that that is a problem that you cannot solve with analog methods, but that there is a potential for technology to distribute exponentially the learnings uh, uh, and, and, the, and the trainings then you begin to pay attention. You have to pay attention. Because it's all part of your problems. Right? Because it does. You know, so those are some of the things that um, has begun to happen. And not only have the entrepreneurs and the innovators become more pragmatic about what needs to happen, um, but also the governments are also becoming more attentive and more, you know, and more proactive about engaging. You know, and it's not nearly where it needs to be. We still see a lot of resistance. We still see a lot of ignorance. But it's changing. Do you think they're doing enough? Or not, ne- not even nearly. I mean, it's, it, it differs from place to place. You know, it, it depends on where you go, you know, and you encounter varying levels of, of, of resistance. And I mean, I guess I'm going to speak to Nigeria where, <laughs> uh, you know, because I, don't, I mean, we see st- stuff happening in Rwanda where they're creating sandboxes for fintech, you know, where they're empowering younger people. The CEO of, of Irembo, which is the organization agency that supervises all the digital services that, they, and many of the, Public utility services in Rwanda are digitized, you know, lands, immigration. So if we, if we move past Rwanda, for instance, where amazing things are happening, right? And we come to Nigeria where you see varying levels of interest and acceptance. And, but on, but in other places, you see a lot of resistance. For instance, a, the question of right of way for breaking ground for deploying broadband to the last mile has been a huge sticking point. And basically the fact is that we have, you know, terabytes or terabits. You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the, the actual term is, but it's like huge broadband capacity sitting on the coast. Um, that we can, that the, the, the providers, the ISPs have not been able to deploy to the last mile, um, high speed internet that they cannot take into the, um, into, to, to, to people that actually need it because many of the states um, the, the, the governments of the states, which is what we call them in Nigeria, are demanding large amounts of money to give them permission to break the ground to deploy the fiber. Yes. And they're, and they're asking those private companies, and this is public land owned by the state. Uh, but the, the, the amounts of money they're demanding is frankly unreasonable. And the logic is that, you know, you deploy fiber, it creates, you know, access to information knowledge. It, it spurs commerce, it increases revenues, you know, so, just from a local revenue standpoint, it makes sense to be flexible about how, you know, and that way, if you're thinking long term, by allowing them to break ground 
at rates that make sense, you can stimulate your local economies. Uh, but but they're like, no, you have to pay all that pay us that money up front. Isn't this just the general thing that's been happening, let's say, past two, three years or whatever, where government entities, the police or whoever, SARS, are sort of seeing tech ecosystem as the people to extort from? So we went, we went from apathy. It's like, what are those toys they're playing with? To, wow, that's interesting. Whereas, you know, these people are creating economic activity and receiving money from investors you know local foreign is like this is interesting you know let's go see what's going on and i feel like we're now at the stage where they're kind of like poking around to see what's going on and they don't they're not quite sure how to engage with it and usually the most eager people you will see at the outside are the rent seekers who will be like this is an opportunity to you know make to collect rent literally but what we are now also seeing is an equal amount of pushback push from from the entrepreneurs and also from other smarter people in government, in policy, who say, hey, this is a huge opportunity to, you know, boost the economies. And if you stifle it by doing unreasonable things, by, you know, asking for rent, you know, by literally suffocating them before they have a chance to actually do anything, then you will be making a massive mistake. You know, so these are the conversations that are currently ongoing. And again, it's why it's super important to be engaging proactively, because otherwise you allow for knee-jerk responses to dominate. And those are not sustainable. It's temporary, you know. So these are the conversations that are currently ongoing with the regulators, with policymakers. I mean, we, we convene what we call town halls so that we can, so that we can bring together these entrepreneurs, operators, the investors, and the policymakers so that they can see what these people are trying to do. And, you know, you don't just, you don't just learn about the opportunity. You learn about the hardship as well. You learn about the difficult the difficulties in terms of getting people to adopt your product, in terms of market entry, in terms of just, you know, so things like making it easier for people to incorporate and for people to, you know, even exist because the barriers to starting a company, but also in terms of just early taxation, you know, is it sustainable? The fact that even just the capital barriers to entry are so high that adding a tax on top of that in the formative periods of those startups' existence it, it just is more than many of them can bear. And, you know, there's just such a high, ch- you know, death rate, mortality rate, fertility rate for these companies, which is normal in any part of the world. You know, but most companies will die, but it's just much harder to do when you know that as part of your startup cost, you have to start thinking about installing generators. You have to pay yeah. two years of rent as down payments. Obviously, doesn't it, uh, this is Nigeria-centric, by the way. <laughs> because it's still a fundamentally a low-trust society. Um, so these are the... Again, problems of infrastructure that we are navigating. Yes, that we, again, it's, it, you just need to work from the bottom up and not assume that there's any, going to be any silver bullets. We're seeing an effort at consolidation. There are many pockets of digital identity, you know, yes. from the banks to the BVNs, you know, to the international passports. Like there is all these pockets of digital identity that, you know, we're seeing an effort to work to consolidate. Uh, and we're even seeing startups that are trying to get into that digital identity game, like, you know, offering th- themselves as places where they can, you know, capture that information and then become verification platforms, you know, for people who are trying to offer credit or services or, or whatever it is. And hopefully we will see more government involvement, you know, in terms of adopting these services or supporting them and, 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 and consolidating them so that we can, you know, but really these are the things that need to happen. Um, to get to a place where, again, the barriers to starting a business, to starting a company, just need to become much lower. So that's the conversation that is 
beginning to happen. And, you know, one of the places where it's playing out is in Lagos State, you know, where we've seen an influx of mobility and transport services, you know, but we also saw a corresponding interest from the government and say, to say, <laughs> to say, to say, I mean, what is going on here, by the way? And it's not just the government, obviously. It's also the people who are on the ground already in those sectors, but in an analog, analog fashion. So the people who ride the taxis, who drive the taxis, the people who um, are the drivers of the motorbikes, of the, the Okadas, right? And it's not different from what you see anywhere else in the world, in South Africa, you know, the, um, in... In, 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 in the UK, where you see an initial resistance to ride-hailing services, the pushback, because doing things in that way does affect their bottom lines. And you know you need to figure out where that middle ground is between not putting these people out of a job, out of work, and disadvantaging them economically, you know. So it's that push and pull, that, you know, that, that conversation, that engagement that we're now beginning to see happen, but at a scale that I think is going to yield interesting results over the next few months to, to years, you know, where we can now see something that actually works come out of that, you know, because they're not just also creating solutions that work on land, but they're talking about doing stuff that also harnesses um, Lagos's waterways, for instance, doing stuff that works on, like Lagos is obviously famous for its traffic. And if you can get that traffic, if you can divert it, you know, into the water, into, you know, working on the real solutions, that's the, le- that's the level of infrastructural inter- intervention that you need. And it's that, crosstalk between all of these you know actors in the private and the public sector that hopefully you will see an exponential uh movement towards again that destiny that future that we're trying to move towards as opposed to entrepreneurs in a silo trying to solve the problem by themselves and saying hey we don't need the government you know you know and obviously the government like walk moving around in circles how did you <laughs> mention you mentioned Okadas and uh and transportation something i found interesting having been once in Lagos and different parts of the continent is that you get a lot of motorbike transportation. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so the transportation systems in any country are just a reflection of how equal that society is. Um, anywhere you go, so, you know, they're called Buddhas in East Africa, you know, in, in Kenya, in Uganda, you know, in um, in Rwanda, you know, motorcycle taxes are a thing. And I'm, to be honest, I'm not any sort of urban historian or so, um, sociologist, but, you know, these are the solutions that have emerged as a result of the fact that certain types of infrastructure don't exist and they have emerged organically, you know, and eventually what you want to, you know, what you want to get to is a point where, you know, obviously people are able to get to most places in comfort, well, in relative comfort and in a way that is financially sensible for them to do, given what their, you know, the amounts of disposable income is you know and cities evolve you know over time and you know motorcycle tax is going to be around in the next 20 years i do not know you know many things will have changed you know we don't know how much the urban infrastructure landscape will have changed you might know, maybe by then you know self-driving cars will have become a thing and obviously the, the extent to which you can deploy self-driving cars in any locale will depend it's on the will, will depend on the you know it's advancement of the infrastructure you know, but cities evolve and the, the, the pace at which human civilization advances, you know, this phone is more powerful than <clears throat> the computer that launched the Apollo mission, right? That sent, that put people on the moon, you know, so, and this, uh, that was 50 years ago, you know, so what is to say that in 10, 20, 30 years, we won't have evolved, you know, 
infrastructure structures that will have again that word leapfrogged i hate it you know because there are consequences to leapfrogging things yeah. but i think that things are going to change significantly and obviously the people that are employed in those roles will have to have transition and again it, it just leads us into that concern about the future of work and what people will do in another 10 to 20 years and how much robots will be involved in our day-to-day activities now and things that we consider to be productive activities that people actually can get paid to do you know but many things will change and maybe by then again there will be a drone delivering your pizza not a motorcycle a motorcycle taxi like you know it is currently obtaining now again it's in fact in nigeria they don't need to do many things you just need to solve the power problem um, you know, it's just electricity, 24 hours, let it work. People will figure out the rest for, for themselves. And it's just those basic issues of infrastructure. The fact that we have this amount of technology penetration is a miracle. It's, it's just a testament to the power, uh, to the, you know, just the willpower of the entrepreneurs, you know, to persevere uh, in spite of, you know, just incredibly adverse circumstances. And so far... We have shown that it is possible to do a number of things. But what we have learned in, in, in this period is, again, that just importance of engaging. And, you know, it's interesting. We see all kinds of committees constituted, you know, so at some point, some people will constitute some committee and say, you know, in, uh, in, in, in Kenya, they had a blockchain task force or what, was it a super force? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was this really cool sounding name. You know, they, they, uh, so anyway, yeah, you know, uh, in Nigeria, you know, they created some sort of, uh, uh, technology entrepreneur council. I, I don't know. I can't remember the names of these things. So I, sometimes these things sound like doodads, <laughs> you, know, <it's> like, <laughs> you know, but these people are having real conversations and, you know, we, we don't get to hear about all the things that happen beyond, be, be, behind the closed doors. There are many things that go down. Look, you know, you might have heard the story of, you know, Shio Onigbinde, um, a budget who got offered a position and then, and he had to retract. And, you know, the truth is we will never know what happened, what went down, you know, in that construct because again, for many of the people who have access, who by virtue of what they've done and what they've accomplished, managed to get their foot into the door and are able to have these high level concessions. Sometimes there is a trade off that they have to make between, it's like the price of access, you know, where you get sucked into the establishment. And when you see what it actually is like, you discover that this shit is actually fucked up. <laughs> and and you might not want to be part of it. Or you might discover that it's actually just harder to change than you, or influence than you actually anticipated, you know. And, you know, we, we talk about how the only way to change the establishment is from the inside. But it might require more sacrifice than some of us are willing to make to actually get in there. And, you know, what is, maybe it's not even fair to ask for that sacrifice because we have seen people go in there and get changed and become part of the establishment and become part of the system, you know, and I'm not going to mention names now, but, but we've seen people, you know, that this has happened to, that we had really, really high hopes for, you know, get in there and we hope that uh, now we have a voice in here. Now we have someone who gets it, but they get assimilated. Resistance is futile. <laughs> you know, you don't know if 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 it's if it's if it's going to happen. So really, just finding that balance between engagement but keeping one's soul is is really difficult. And but we can't stop having these conversations. We can't stop engaging. We can't stop number one holding people to account and trying to educate them about what needs to happen. And so all these accomplishments are the ticket in. You know, you do these things and you, you innovate in spite of the barriers. When you get your foot in the door, you engage and you engage your ass off. 
and hope for the best, you know, and just really try not to get sucked in because it's, it's, it's hard. Talking of accountability and holding them to account, I want to move back to media quickly. How, I mean, how, how, how's the freedom of speech and, and, and journalists' rights? I mean, I guess um, for staying in technology, we kind of have been fortunate that we don't really get into the radar of the, <laughs> you know, we're not political pundits, we're not, uh, you know, you know, we're not in the crosshairs of when you're talking about civic governance and digital advocacy. That's now a different space where you're straight in the crosshairs and you're actually needing to look over your shoulder. And, and that's a different space. But for the most part, it's mostly tame. You know, the people that you're having to deal with are pissed off corporates, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who are like, why did you write that? You're making me look bad. And, and I, I guess that's, you know, in, in some shape or form, a something we've been fortunate to, you know, that all you have to deal with is pissed off corporates and entrepreneurs who didn't like the way you wrote about them, even if what you, even, even if it's, even if it's accurate and factual and true. But in terms of press freedoms, you know, it's, you know, it's not where it needs to be, you know, um, it's better than some places, you know, but, you know, we're still in an era where people are getting arrested. Young girls are getting jailed for scribbling on, on a president's face, you know, so, you know, that's the, world we still live in and obviously it's getting more and more difficult for governments to be as oppressive and repressive because there are now real international consequences for that sort of behavior but what they're doing now which is pretty smart from their side is introducing all sorts of laws like clauses oh yeah inbuilt into yeah. Like a cyber yeah. protection law but yeah there's a tools about what you can say online yeah. and and that is and that is what we really need to watch out for that's where we need to be vigilant and where people need to be keeping track of what is going on. You know, people tend to, you know, we're behind our computers most of the time, you know, on Twitter. We're not, on, you know, on the legislative floor. We're not scouring the bills that are getting passed, um, you know, looking for all these things that they are, you know, squirreling away into the, into, the, into the Constitution, into the laws, you know, where they can actually censor. And they use that against you, and you're not even aware it exists. And you're not, and you're not aware it exists until you actually... Uh, comes to bite you in the ass, literally. You know, so that is a trend that is very, very uncomfortable that is developing. You know, we, we're hearing about countries where they're instituting laws where you have to pay certain amounts of money to have a license, a license to, <laughs> to, 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 to blog, to vlog in, in, you know, they're introducing digital taxes on, on, on messaging, you know, so, and these are just very, very disheartening developments. But I think that these things, I think that freedom is going to win out in some shape or form, eventually, because again, they're trying to stop something that is inevitable. You know, that's, it's, it's, you know, people are going to find ways to, to speak. People are going to express themselves. There is a degree to which you will be able to circumvent free speech. You look at what's going on in Cameroon, where, you know, they just keep doing these blackouts and people will find a way. You know, they will find a way to get around. Become, because it becomes, I guess it's like Lagos where you don't have electricity. So that becomes a new normal and you find a way around. So you find out what that new normal is. You know, in Nigeria, it's electricity is dodgy. You know, and I have an inverter. We People have generators or, or inverters that allow you power 24 hours. So that's what we do, you know. And in a place where the internet is dodgy, then you have VPNs. <laughs> you know, you know that's, that's what you do. You know, you just have to do it. And eventually they will have to relent because that circumvention is now going to become the new normal for them. They will realize that in such a form, people are going to 
talk about this. People are going to speak out. People are going to express themselves. And there is no, there's really not a lot that you'll be able to do about it. It's like, how long can you turn off the internet in an entire country for? But also, you know, I, I mean, I think, it, you know, Ethiopia is also interesting in, in that they've just come a long way in the last, you know, year or two, you know, in terms of things. And, you know, the hope is that things get better and and things become more open over time. You know, we're seeing a lot of, you know, visa, the, the visa on arrival thing was a huge step, you know, for all African countries. So these are the encouraging signs that we're seeing. You know, and it is easy to dismiss all of it as doom and gloom and say, hey, you know, uh, they're they're becoming repressive and they're doing things. But I think that on a net basis, there is progress. I'm Colin. I think I said when we started, I talked about longevity. And I think testament that we're sitting across and still talking media so many years later. Dude, yeah, we're, we are survivors, man. <laughs> and we're still surviving, I think. So, but I think it's a necessary, a necessary journey, a necessary task. And thank you for all that you do. Well, why thank you for all that you do. And thanks for being on the podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Tefo Mohapi Show, which is broadcast by iAfrican Radio. To be notified of future episodes of this podcast and any other shows from iAfrican Radio, please visit radio.iafrican.com. That is radio.iafrican.com and subscribe. You can catch future episodes on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else where you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to leave us a review and rating of the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow myself on Twitter at Tefomohapi, which is T-E-F-O. M-O-H-A-P-I. Also, don't forget to follow African 2 on Twitter at I-A-F-R-I-K-A-N. Hotzo.